It was just that I remember walking down the street in my hometown on a Tuesday, and I can't remember the date, but I know it was a Tuesday, and it was 1 p.m., and I remember walking, like being outside because Heather and I had gone to lunch or something, and walking down the street thinking, wow, it's Tuesday at 1 p.m., most people at work, I'm not... What's up, you awesome people? My name is Mikkel Kraszowski, and welcome to episode number nine of That Remote Show, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm super pumped to be speaking with Travis Sherry, the founder of Extra Pack of Peanuts, a blog and podcast that teaches you how to travel more while spending less. Since starting the Extra Pack of Peanuts podcast in 2013, it has gone on to have millions of downloads and become one of the top travel podcasts on iTunes. Travis is also the founder of Location Indie, an online community for location-independent entrepreneurs, and the Paradise Pack, an annual bundle sale of the top travel and business courses. And you guys, this was seriously one of the most information-packed interviews to date. We talked about how Travis started Extra Pack of Peanuts and how he went from a struggling blogger to a six-figure earner in just a couple of years. And we also talked about some of the trials that many online entrepreneurs experience, but very few talk about, unfortunately. Uh, In the second part of the interview, we also dove into Travis's huge bank of knowledge when it comes to travel miles. And you'll learn all about how they work, how to start earning miles so that you can fly for free, and a list of some of the best credit cards to start with. So seriously, guys, this is an interview that you do not want to miss if you're somebody who loves to travel. Uh, but before we dive into that, I just want to take a few seconds and highlight another review that we received on the podcast. And this one is from Kairos of Time, who says, five stars, Miko is a strong thought leader in the location independent space. Cool interviews and forward thinking, but down to earth idea sharing. So thank you so much for that review, Kairos of Time. Uh, I really appreciate the kind words and that you took the time to leave a review. And if you're listening and digging the podcast so far, please consider taking a few seconds yourself to leave an honest review wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. And uh, who knows, maybe your review will be highlighted on the next episode, just like Kairos of Times. Well, Anyways, you guys, that's enough of me blabbering on. Let's dive into this awesome interview with Travis Sherry. All right, Travis. Well, uh, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. I, as I mentioned to you, I could talk about myself for hours. So I'm glad that I got to fl- you got to flip the script a little bit and I get to tell some of my story and help people out with travel miles and points and all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. We were just, uh, so you just interviewed me on your podcast. So if anybody's interested about hearing about Bulgaria and why you should go there, uh, definitely go and uh, check out Travis's podcast, uh, Extra Pack of Peanuts. But today, now, in this part of our call, I get to interview you about something that you're an expert on, which is travel miles. And you're kind of like one of like the top experts on this. And so I'm really excited to learn more with the listeners about how they can maximize points and travel for free or almost free. However, before we dive into that, I really want to learn more about um, your website, Extra Pack of Peanuts, and the podcast and how all of that started. Uh, Because it's been a pretty 
big part of your life and it's like your business and it's your baby. So let's hear about that. Like how, why start the podcast? Why start the website? And where were you when that happened? Yeah. So I'll take you back a little bit and just give you a, a brief history of, of my life. So I'm a twin on January 3rd, 1983. I was born. Now I, Are you I mean, really I'm a twin. twin. I am oh. a twin and I was born January 3rd, 1983, but we don't go that far back. I was not much of a traveler as a, a kid and in through my teens and early 20s. You know, my parents took us, my grandparents certainly wasn't bit by the travel bug. My parents didn't ingrain that in me, just wasn't something we did a ton of. And, and so my foray into travel and why I wanted to make this into business and why I eventually did, there's kind of a few main tipping points. The first main tipping point was that I did an internship after a master's degree. I was 26 years old at that point. And I moved to Switzerland and worked there for four months. And that showed me that it was different than just travel, like a vacation. I lived there and I, I lived in this awesome town outside of Lausanne. And I was like, wow, this is really cool to live amongst another culture because you have some time to dive pretty deep. And, you know, I had my favorite bakery and our favorite bar and all that kind of stuff. So I thought, man, this would be a really neat lifestyle, but I didn't know anyone doing it. I certainly didn't know anyone who was a digital nomad or location independent because I didn't even know those terms existed. So I came home and I went back to being a teacher for a year, but, but knew I wanted more. And so that led itself to a teaching gig in Japan. And I didn't know anything about Asia. I had never been to Japan. I hadn't didn't speak Japanese at all. I, I didn't, you know, I could barely tell you the difference between Tokyo and Beijing, you know, all that kind of stuff. But my wife and I knew that that would be a great opportunity to see a part of the world we had never been to. And so we took this job teaching Japan and we ended up staying there for two years. And while I was in Japan, that's when I started the site, because at that point I knew I wanted to live abroad and I knew I didn't just want a vacation, but I didn't know what to do. I had read the four hour work week, like a lot of people and the that Bible. Put in my, yeah, the Bible. And that put in my head that there was another way of doing things, but I certainly didn't have an idea. I, I just knew, Oh my gosh, there are people who run businesses online, but they can do it because they're programmers and they know websites. And I knew nothing about tech. And when I was in Japan, I get very, animated and excited about things that I that I learn and I, I fall down rabbit holes. And I, I think everyone is excited as I am and usually they are not. Well, when I was in Japan, I started learning about frequent flyer miles out of necessity because I wanted to travel and I wanted to go home to the US and but I didn't want to spend a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars getting my myself and my wife home. And so I started learning about frequent flyer miles and thought, hey, this is way too good to be true. Like, this is a scam. There's no way this can happen. The only person I know with frequent flyer miles is my uncle, and he's a business traveler, and he just gets them from flying. And I quickly learned that that isn't the case. You can earn frequent flyer miles a multitude of ways, the biggest and quickest and fastest way through credit card sign-up bonuses. And I was 28. I didn't have a credit card to my name. But I thought, hmm, you know, let me do some research. And I spent a couple months, like, all right, I, you know, very critical, very skeptical. There's no way there's, there's a catch here. And I just came to realize that, no, if you're responsible with opening the right credit cards and, and paying it off, you get these miles and you can use them for free travel. So started really slow. Like I tell everyone, start very slow with it, and we'll get into that. But I got a, a card, and then I got another card, and pretty soon my wife and I were flying home from Japan for free for oh, all right it was like $60 a ticket instead of a thousand dollars sure thought, wow that's awesome 
And I started telling everyone I knew about it. My parents, my sister, my friends. And some people were somewhat interested. Some people were like, whatever, this is another one of Trav's schemes, scams, whatever. Not that they thought I was scamming them, but they just like, what? This you're, you're blabbing at me. I don't care. So I started writing emails and then to people, and then they'd ask some questions. And I realized that I was wasting a lot of time writing emails to people who didn't care. So why didn't I just write it all on a website? And January 1st, 2012 is when I first, when I was living in Japan, it was our second year there. I started writing on extrapackofpeanuts.com because I thought if I like this and if I want to travel cheap, there's got to be other people who care. Let me just write what I'm doing. And it was from a novice perspective. I was probably a three out of 10 at that point with my knowledge, but I knew there was a lot of zeros. And when I was a zero, it took me five, six, seven months to figure to even get to a three. So I'm like, let, let me take people along on the journey. And so that's where Extra Pack of Peanuts began. And I started you know, the, the site in January 1st, 2012. And then the podcast, I think it was May of 2013. And it was all based around this idea that I wanted other people to know that there is an opportunity out there for people who want to travel more, don't have a ton of money, or even if they do have a ton of money, don't want to spend it on traveling. There's certainly ways you can do it cheaper. And there was this world of what is called now called travel hacking. And that's miles and points and credit cards and all that in order to be able to get air, airline tickets and hotels for literally pennies on the dollar. So that current day, we've been doing it for now six, seven years. And um, every part of the journey has been awesome because it's the end goal is to help more people travel and to be able to travel myself. And that's what we see bearing out as we do our podcasts and our site. So that takes us to, to now and, uh, and to the business. So you said you just kind of like really briefly touched on this and you said that when you first came up with this and you started telling your friends and your family they said this is one of travis's schemes now immediately to this when i hear this about somebody and their family saying oh this is one of his or her th schemes i'm immediately like this is somebody who's entrepreneurial right because usually it's like schemes like it's usually these like weird things like oh like i heard about this thing to do th right like this is kind of how it pops up would you say that you were that sort of person before like you always had these ideas in these quote unquote like i i don't like the word schemes but these sort of like schemes and plans like or did that just happen with the podcast and the website so i think i was but i didn't know it and i also wasn't an entrepreneur growing up. I wasn't the kid who was out mowing grass for more money or, you know, selling lemonade on the side of the road. I had a lot of ideas, but I had never really acted on it. So I think I was probably in a boat that a lot of people are on or are in where they have a lot of ideas floating around, but they never act on it because of a lot because of a lot of reasons. We can get into what those are. Fear being a big one, but also just like who am I to do this? And it wasn't until I read the four hour work week where I then started instead of thinking these is just like ideas it's like oh this is an idea and, and but not really thinking of it as having any legs i think if i didn't read that book when i started learning about frequent flyer miles i wouldn't have ever thought hey this is now going to be my idea because i remember once i got maybe a couple months in to realizing that it worked and it was working for me i did have the thought oh my gosh i love this so much other people will probably love this. I want to turn this into a business. Now, I had absolutely no idea what that looked like or how to do it. But I think just reading that book allowed me to think, oh, my gosh, this can be a business, even if you have no idea what it's going to look like. So 
I would say I ha- always had ideas and was always like throwing stuff off the wall and always very excited about stuff and kind of interested and curious by nature. But it wasn't until that book and then this idea where I actually acted on it and turned it into something. So was Extra Pack of Peanuts kind of like your first time, like you said, acting on an idea? Like, was that like the first time you did that or was there something else before that that you acted on? It was pretty much the first thing I acted on. When I was in college, I wanted to run poker tournaments at bars, which then became a very popular thing for a while. But I thought kind of before it it started and blown up, I printed out flyers and went to one bar and had one conversation with one like 25 year old general manager of a bar about running poker tournaments there. And that was about as far as that went. So I did take some initiative, but it was very small. So yeah, Extra Pack of Peanuts was definitely the first real foray into building my own business and and for sure the first foray into a digital business. So what was the difference between Extra Pack of Peanuts and then the poker stuff? And the reason that I ask about that is because I think a lot of people maybe not a lot of people. I'm talking about myself here because I've started 1800 things before and I've tried to run them and I've quit and I feel like a lot of people go through the same thing where they like try a lot of things, they quit and then they finally get to something and it works, but a lot of times it's because they learned something along the way, but for you it seems like you did this one thing and you kept saying like I took one flyer, talked to one person, I did, you know, whatever like why did you stick with extra pack of peanuts? longer than the poker stuff i think there was there's two reasons one i was just older and more mature and i had worked in a real job as a teacher for four years at home and then two years in japan and in between um before japan i was selling vacuum cleaners door to door so i had a i had some experience in the real world enough to know that I didn't what I didn't want to do. And so that then led me to say, okay, you really like this. And like, maybe there's some motivation there to try it. Like there's, there's, I know what the other side looks like now as, as you know, a difference from when I was in college, I, I had never had a regular job really. So I didn't, know that I wanted to do that. I just thought, oh, this would be cool. Whereas here I'm like, all right, I know what the other side looks like. I know what a real job looks like. I know I don't want that. So now I'm motivated to do this. So that was the main, like the, the first main reason. I would also say that I was probably more interested in the frequent fire mile stuff a bit than the poker stuff. Maybe not. Maybe that's like looking back with rose colored glasses, but that was a, a minute difference. The second big difference was the fact that I had a job teaching English in Japan And I did that while I started Extra Pack of Peanuts. So I didn't say, I'm going to quit a job and go all in on this. I started in January January 1st, 2012 was when I wrote the first post on the website. And I knew I was leaving August of 2012. So I did it while I was working full time. So if if it didn't work out, and again, in the beginning, I, honestly, for the first four or five months, I didn't even know what it working out looked like because I didn't have any plan to monetize. I was just doing it as a hobby, saying I'm going to write as much as I can because I love this stuff so much. So if it didn't work out, it wasn't that big of a deal because I wasn't relying on it to make money. It was a hobby in the beginning with the idea that I wanted to turn it into a business somehow. So that is an important key, too, is that I was 
doing it in my spare time, but I wasn't doing it as my full-time thing, and there wasn't the pressure to make money off it right away. I could figure out what it looked like over those eight months before I then had to figure out how to make money because I was leaving Japan. Man, I think that that is... That's so important because there's some people on the internet without naming any names that will tell people that they should like quit their job, like quit whatever they're doing, move to Thailand and like figure it out. And like, yes, that can work in certain cases, but I think what you said is just so important that don't put the unnecessary stress on whatever you want your thing to be. Uh, In fact, there is um, Sean McCabe uh, has a book out called Overlap. And it's all about exactly that period of time where you're still working, you're still kind of like um, funding your life through like your job or whatever it is that you're doing at the moment. And then there's this like over overlap period when your new project or business starts and how essentially that can like launch it forward, right? Because the good thing about that is you're running your website, you're running your podcast in your case, and then any money that you do make, you can reinvest, right? Because you don't need it to put food on the table so you can reinvest, you can pay for ads, you can do like whatever it is that you need to do. And that's so, so important. Now, when did you start feeling with your, you know, running this podcast and this website, Extra Pack of Peanuts, and you said like you're doing it like a hobby, at what point were you like, okay, this is a business and like what happened? Like how did you start making money at first from it? Yeah, there are two, uh, again, two tipping points with me thinking it was a business. The first was, okay, I'm going to do this full time. And the second was when I actually knew that this was now my life and I was not going to have to go back to teaching. So the first happened when we were leaving Japan, I knew it was going to happen in August. And so I said to myself, if you can make $3,000 a month by August, when you go home to the U S you can do this full time. Like you give yourself permission. You don't have to you don't have to get a full-time job because I, you know, 3000 was about, I probably could have made a little more of the full-time job, but it's somewhat equivalent to coming home, starting again, getting an entry level job. And so I started making money with extra pack of peanuts starting in June. So I had been writing for about five, six months and I realized that there was an opportunity with my writing to make some money as an affiliate for the credit card companies. And I knew that I didn't want to do this, I knew other sites who were just starting the same time as me were doing that. And I knew that that didn't want to be my main monetization strategy forever, but I knew that it was an easy, quick win because I was already writing and telling people what credit cards to get. And they were like, Hey, this is great advice, this and that. So I thought, all right, cool. If, If you just apply through my site, then I get a kickback. So, you know, I did in the beginning, I had to kind of seek those people out. So I was on forums and I was saying, Hey, does anyone need help with credit? Or they're asking credit card questions. I'm like, if you want me to personally look at your situation and give you a personal credit card consultation, I will. So it wasn't just traffic from my site. And all of a sudden I turned it on and was like, Oh, here's a link. And I made 3000. I was, I remember one of the banks saying to me, you have to have, I forget how many approvals, like uh, 20 approvals a month. And you're in a transition period. And you have what two do months. approvals have, mean? Approvals meaning someone clicking, signing up for a credit card, and getting approved for that card from my link. So I had to have 20 a month for two months for them to like take me off this probationary period and and oh. me to go full time. So, so I knew they can I see was, that you're like a legitimate, you know, a like contributor, not just right. like some one off. Okay, gotcha. 
Right, and so they, they're not going to put time into my site and, and you know having me on their roster of sites if I was getting one referral or one approval a month. So I knew, hey, there's no way this is going to happen. And I think it was 20. It might have been even a little more. But I knew there was no way it was going to happen just from my traffic on my site. So I went to forums and sought it out and was basically saying, I'll help you out. And, hey, if you want to do me a favor, can you can you apply through my link? And so people were. So it was very time-heavy. Um, but it got me to those 20 approvals I needed for the month and then for the next month. So at that point I was bringing close to about $3,000 a month. So I was writing and the writing was bringing me traffic, but not exactly money, right? It wasn't like, oh, now I'm just making money this way. I had to kind of supplement it with those consultations. So I went home and I said, uh, so that was the first tipping point of like, now I'm going full time. So I went home, I wrote an ebook. We can get into that. But I essentially thought, oh my gosh, I'm just going to write an ebook. And if I sell it for $49, this was my honest to God thinking. If I sell it for $49 and 10,000 people buy it, that's half a million dollars. Well, how hard is 10,000 people to get to buy your book? That seems normal. I mean, this is how naive I was. I, it turns out 10,000 is. Oh, very hard. Uh, a thousand is very hard. So I spent all this time writing this book two months and then no time basically marketing. Like I thought that was the end. Like once I produced the product, people would just come to my site and of course they buy the book because my information is awesome and the guide is the best guide out there. So of course they're going to buy it. I learned very quickly. No one cares how good the information is if, if they don't even know it's there and if they don't know how to find it and if you haven't proven yourself to them. So that was a lesson. But that was the first tipping point was when I went home and I went full time. And um, I, I will say, just to make sure no one thinks it was easy, uh, I'll give you this piece, uh, this little anecdote. So I go home August 2012. I go full time. I write the book September, October. I start selling the book. I do a launch. I don't even know what that word is, but I just say, <laughs> hey, the book is now here. And we make maybe like $3,000 on the book in the beginning. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And I just thought that would keep happening. But I realized then, like, you know, like I said, you have to keep marketing. But we got to a point where in December of 2012, so we're about a year in now, we made $7,000. And I was like, so some of that was the book. In a month. And that was the book. So, like, that was the book launch. Or maybe it was November. So, it, like, coincided with the book launch. So about $3,000 in the book and about $4,000 off credit cards. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm the man. I've made it. This is only going to go up and up. Like, life is good. I was so excited. And I realized then that this could go away in the blink of an eye. And so on my 30th birthday, January 3rd, 2013, I got an email from a credit card company. I won't name who they are, but we had been fighting a little bit because I love their cards and I love recommending them, but they wanted me to recommend different cards that they were coming out with that weren't as good. And I kept saying, that maybe no. they were making more money off of the, yeah. Okay. Right. They're like, we want you to promote this. This is a new one. Let's get this in front of people. I'm like, that's not as good as the one I'm recommending. I am not going to do that. And so I just kept telling them, no, no, no. And eventually uh, on my, well, not eventually on my birthday, they were like, okay, um, you're not an affiliate with us anymore. And they just cut all my links. So they just, so I still had links, but they didn't make me any money. Like they just dropped me because I would not play the game that they wanted me to play. And so I knew, and I told you, I knew in the beginning that I didn't want affiliate to be my main source of income, but at that point it was, and there was nothing wrong with it. Like it was rolling, but at that, so that day I was the, as depressed as I've ever been in my life. I canceled my 30th birthday. Like I said to Heather, call everyone. Like I'm not, I don't want to be around anyone. 
uh, had canceled it that day. I had been living with my parents because we had just moved home from Japan four months earlier. So we we're like looking at apartments. I'm like, this is flowing well. And all of a sudden it was gone. So uh, that took about a year to come back. Like it was about eight to 10 months where we stayed with my parents. I was scraping by making about $1,500 a month doing consultations still working about 60 hours a week, making, yeah, 15 to $2,000 and really just saying like, what is happening here? I'm working hard. I know my stuff's good, but I'm making no money. And, um, that was a very, I call it the dark ages. That was like, that was very, very, very tough to know you were doing good stuff, but just not being paid for it. Um, and so, yeah, that, that was really, really hard. If we fast forward a little bit, not to skip over too much, but, you know, this isn't the main point of it is, is, you know, my story is not the main This we're going to talk about for miles and all. But the second big turning point and was a couple years later, and it wasn't really that sexy. It was just that I remember walking down the street in my hometown on a Tuesday, and I can't remember the date, but I know it was a Tuesday, and it was 1 p.m., and I remember walking, like being outside because Heather and I had gone to lunch or something and walking down the street thinking, wow, it's Tuesday at 1 p.m. Most people at work. I'm not. I finally feel like a real entrepreneur and this is a real business. And I'm not saying, oh, my gosh, well, this is cool. But if I have to go back to teaching, then that's fine. For whatever reason, I remember I, I, I think it was like a buddy of mine had put out a book and it was a New York Times bestseller. And another guy had done a project that recently that it crushed it. And I just remember thinking, wow, I have these people that I could call up. And if all of them are doing it and doing it well, and they're my friends, like I'm in that group too. Like I don't have a New York Times bestseller, spoiler alert, but I'm in that group too. And this is their life. And now this is my life and I'm not turning back. And I finally felt like a real entrepreneur. And this was probably only three years ago, it's probably five years into it. And I, I told Heather that story and she goes, Oh my gosh, I wish I like, I'm glad I didn't know that. I thought that like four months, four years earlier. So it took me a while to feel comfortable saying this is what I'm going to do going forward. Well, I know that you said that you don't want to, you know, that this isn't the topic of the podcast, so you don't want to dive into that. But I think everybody listening is going to be really interested in what changed between this dark ages period and when you had, because that day that you described sounds like the day that everybody wants to have one point to get done with lunch, not have to go back to work, go outside and just kind of like feel like quote unquote free, right? Yep. To like be able to do what they want to do with their day. What changed between this dark ages period and then, then like feeling like you had kind of like made it essentially that this was your life? I feel like I keep having two things for each question. There are two specific times. Okay. To get out of the dark ages was this was in July of so again happened January first or January third. We're now in July, so we're seven months in. And I went to a conference called World Domination Summit, and I met a guy there that I had talked to on the phone. His name is Jacob Sokol. He's a great guy. He's a little bit like a mentor, like not formally, but he was about a year ahead of me. Like he had started his, uh, his blog a year before me, and so I was talking to him. And I remember sitting down with him and I was just telling him like, man, what am I going to do? Like I'm barely scraping by. How am I going to do this? And he said, don't write another blog post. Don't record another podcast until you find a way to make money. And I'm like, no, no, no. I have to have two blog posts out. I have to have one podcast a month. Everything's about consistency, building the audience. And he goes, 
if you keep doing that and never make money off it, you're going to have to go get a real job and then you're not going to be able to do that anyway. So he said, do not do anything else until you find a way right now to monetize what you're doing and to make money. And instantly I knew what I was going to do. I was going to take my book and turn it into an online course. I had thought about doing an online course even before I wrote a podcast or even before I wrote a blog post on Extra Pack of Peanuts. I remember thinking like, oh, this would be cool to turn into a course because I was a teacher and I was like, I could explain this and this would be this class and this curriculum and here would be the outline. So I had that idea a long time ago. And then having written the book, I realized that a lot of people needed more handholding. They were reading the book and they were still coming to me and saying, hey, can you book me the trip? And I'm like, that's not the point of the book. The point of the book is that you now know how to do it on your own. But they just they wanted more oversight. So in between, like there was a there was an area in between booking their trip and the book that could give them more handholding. But it still wasn't me doing it for them. And that was an online course. And so I came home that day from the conference and I said, hey. I'm going to start Frequent Flyer Boot Camp. I put it out to my email list that I've been growing for a year and a half. And I said, all right, it's $149. Here's what it's going to be. You're going to go through as a cohort. And uh, I'm giving you three days to sign up. And it's capped at 30 people. And I was like, I said 30 just because that was the biggest number I could imagine getting in. Like, I couldn't even imagine it. But I was like, all right, give them some urgency. And in the first day, seven people signed up. And I remember thinking, cool, I don't have a course. I don't even know how to make a course. Like, I don't even know what technology to use. So I ran out to Staples, bought like one of those electronic whiteboards that you can write on and then it like shows up on your screen. It took me four hours to make the first video because I couldn't write and talk at the same time. It was very difficult. And uh, I spent the next three days making this course. And since then, we've redone the course a bunch. And it's a lot bigger and more thorough. But that was... In three days, I was telling them they were starting lesson one, so I needed to make it. And uh, we had, I think, 15 first course was $2,000. And I remember thinking that was, like, to me, a crazy amount of money that I had just made $2,000 in, in three days. Now, you know, obviously I had to deliver and I had to go through the course with them and we had conference calls and stuff like that. But that was the very first time I thought, all right, now I have a product of my own. I had the book, but I, I kind of just pushed that to the side. Now this was my first product that was dependent on me. I could charge $1,000 for it. I could charge $1 for it. I was not relying on affiliate. So that was my first, like, pull me out of the dark ages. Now you have something. And then the second big thing was when Jason from Zero to Travel and I did the Paradise Pack the very first year. And I forget the exact numbers, but I think we each took home maybe 10,000, it's probably a little less, maybe it was like $8,000 from that project. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, now I've got some breathing room. Like now it's not month to month. That $8,000 gives me a little bit of a buffer. And then we did it the next year and it was bigger and the next year was even bigger. And so I had more and more buffer. But that was the first time I had literally money in my savings account that wasn't, I'm going to spend all this this month. I have to figure out how to make more. Yeah, I think that's really important as an entrepreneur because when you have your own business, you know, you're not relying on a monthly paycheck and it's very normal for your income to kind of like go up and then go down. That doesn't mean that if it's going down, doesn't mean that it's bad. It just means that's normal. And so you need to have that extra breathing room in order to like even things out, right? Like maybe you're making $10,000 one month, but then next month a sale isn't running or something isn't going. So you only make two and then you kind of can like even it out. I think What's really interesting about the journey that you described is this like map that I saw recently of like the uh, 
the journey of an entrepreneur and I just tried to find it to see what it's called, but I can't find that. I'll link it up in the, in the show notes, but it's essentially to give people a, a kind of like a visualization of it. Imagine like a line from the left to the right and the very, on the very left is kind of like it spikes up and then it drops all the way down and there's some like weird zigzags in the middle and then it kind of starts going up again. And your journey sounds exactly like that, right? It's like that excitement, that first kind of like, like you release it and so you're excited. Everybody that's around you is excited about it. So you see this like rush of like almost like quote unquote success and then it kind of like hits down to the bottom when things even out and you kind of have to like stick through this like weird grimy period to where it starts actually growing. And a lot of people that I've talked to have experienced that. And I mean, I've experienced that myself. I actually called the dark ages too. I had a similar period like that where I was in my basement because I decided to make it my office and I was down there 12, 13 hours a day, just like depressed, con- couldn't figure out exactly what I was doing, which is when I joined Location Indie, actually, which is the group that you and Jason run now together. Um, but yeah, so your journey sounds ex- like it's just such a good representation of what I call um, pet, like pet the dog, like P-E-T, which is patience, experimentation, and trust. And I think that those three things are so important for you to have patience that like, Patience and trust, I think, is like if you're doing something that somebody else has done before, trust the process. If you see them doing it, trust in it and have the patience to like see it through and then like make sure that you're experimenting in between. Like if something isn't working, it doesn't mean that the whole idea or the whole business is crap. Just try something like new, you know, so I think that's really, really important. Yeah, every oh. time I see that image that you're talking about, like people post on Facebook here and there. I can't find it on Google Images either, but on Facebook it always pops up and I just look at it and I laugh because it's it hits home and I'm glad that I'm on the upswing and that's not to say there won't be downswings, but the the whole goal is to get to a point that, that I mentioned to you that, that second time when I was walking down the road on Tuesday where even though there is a downswing, you can weather it and, you know, the amount of money you have to make to be able to do that depends on your situation, right? If if you're single and you're living in Thailand, you could save up more very quickly and a downswing can happen. You might only need a couple thousand in your bank account to weather it. Some people might need a hundred thousand in their bank account to weather it because they have family and responsibilities. So it's different for everyone. But the beauty of that image is that there aren't numbers on it. It's It's emotions and it's feelings. And that is everyone can relate to. And um, it's, it's a lot easier to say now, oh, yeah, just like trust it, come out on the other end. But obviously we've both done it and it's hard when you're in the moment, but there's something in you that keeps you going. And I don't even know what that was. Like People are like, oh, how did you get through those dark ages? Why didn't you get a regular job? And I don't really have a good answer to it, honestly. I mean, I can say, oh, I mean, one big reason why like, my wife believed in me and she was like, no, you got this. And, you know, we, we cut down our living expenses and that was part of it. Some of it was just self-belief that I was doing something that I loved. And I knew it was helping people even if the money wasn't there. So I was fulfilled in another way. But some sometimes it just comes down to just saying, I don't want to go back to that regular life. So I will do every single thing not to get back there. And I'll scratch and claw my way. And, you know, my journey, it's not like I had the worst ever. You know, there's certainly people have had it worse. But you're going to have to scratch and claw at times. And I think that knowing the other side 
is a big part of it. And that's probably why I kept going is because I knew what being a teacher was like. It's not that I hated it, but I didn't want to wear a shirt and tie. I didn't want to wake up at 7 a.m. So I was fine working 60 hours not to work 40 as a teacher because I at least loved what I was doing at that point. Yeah, and, and I promise that for the people listening, we're going to dive into uh, travel miles here in a second. But I think this is a, such a, a great conversation. It's so interesting to like figure this out for people that are listening. I think this is going to be really important. I think the one variable that we haven't talked about that's kind of like I'd say the silent variable in your journey is the podcast and the blog and all that stuff. Because a lot of people will say, oh, I want to do what Travis has done. And they're going to make a course and they're going to put it out there and then there's going to be crickets, right? While you had developed an audience that had built up trust in you. And so when you released the course, there weren't crickets. So at this point, what did the blog and podcast look like in terms of um, downloads and like visitors on the website? Like it doesn't need to be exact numbers, but like what would you say were you having as an audience? Uh, yeah. Go ahead. I, I wish I knew exact numbers. I should probably try to figure it out. But I know that I started the podcast in Mar in March or May, I always forget, of 2013. And then um, the course for Group Fire Bootcamp came out in August of 2013. So the podcast was fairly new, but it, it had a decent amount of listeners. When I say a decent, uh, I, I don't know, let's say 1,000 to 2,000 to 5,000 a month, somewhere in there. Downloads? Downloads a month, but that they were coming from the blog. Like the reason the podcast had downloads was because the blog had already lived for a month, a year and a half. And so that's when you talk about building an audience. That's one of the reasons that honestly, maybe even more important than having the audience because then they could buy my stuff, which was, was that the feedback I was getting from people and the emails I was getting were the things that kept me going was like, Oh my gosh, I found this article uh, that you wrote or they commented on the article and like, this is so good. And now you've helped me travel and this and that. So the feedback that I was getting, even when I wasn't making money off it, kept me going because I knew I was having an impact. So I do think people spend too much time sometimes focusing on growing an audience before actually monetizing. That was my issue. Like I would, if I was doing it over again, I wouldn't wait as long, but counterpoint, you do need an audience to be able to see your stuff. And so there, there is some validity to just getting out there and starting without knowing what your business plan was. And that's what I did. I didn't know how I was going to monetize that first six months. And then, you know, I had been writing for a year and a half before I even launched a frequent flyer bootcamp. So that gave me an audience. I would say maybe the mailing list was about 3000 people. Um, there was never any really big spikes. There was never anything I did to gain traffic. Now I know strategies that could probably get it there a lot faster. But at that point, it was just slow and steady, producing good content, um, you know, finding a few guest posting opportunities, which isn't that big of a deal anymore. But getting my stuff in front of those audiences by like being in the forum and then telling people, hey, I wrote an article about this. And then some people would come over. So, yeah, it was really grassroots. Um, but it was the thing that then when I launched the course allowed me to have those 13 people buy it in the beginning, um, because there was people there who read my, my site and were like, Oh, I trust him because I know his, his blog posts are good. So probably his course is going to be good. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is that you said, you know, if I knew what I know now, 
having gone through this process and I had to go back and do it again, it would probably be a lot quicker. And this makes me think about uh, Matt Giovinisi, who we both know, and he kind of said the same thing with about his website, uh, Swim You. And um, I think I was listening, he's going to be on the podcast here soon, but he uh, was talking about how long would it take him to rebuild Swim You if he had to start all over again. And this is something that, I mean, you know him a lot better than I know, something he's been doing for like 10 years. And he said like, you know, honestly, like probably two. And it's so interesting because that sounds so impossible when you're just getting started because there's so much you don't know, but through experimentation and trying new things, like you're going to learn those things and build that up. So if anybody's out there who's trying to like build a business and and do something like what Travis has done, like I think like he would agree with me on saying this is like stick with it, keep trying new things, just patience, 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 and you know, you'll eventually get there. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. You can fast track it more than I did because I didn't know anything about online business when I started. So if you know some or you're learning some, that's going to help you fast track it. If you understand SEO, that's going to help get people to your blog faster. But there is still at least over 50% of it's going to just be time as well because you're going to have to learn stuff that can only come from experience. So you can fast track it, but that but when you fast track it, it might it might shorten the time, but I don't really think it shortens the uh, the experience or the hard work you have to put in. You can just bypass a few hurdles, but you're still going to have to put the hard work in. You just might get results a little quicker. I don't think anyone could say, oh, I'm going to start something new right now and I'm going to have it just be crushing it in a month or two without really having a lot of dollars behind it or a team behind it, which which in our stuff we don't do. Like, yeah, we have a team with LI, and I have a person now writing for me for Extra Pack of Peanuts, but it's not a huge team. And it's not a lot of money. We're still bootstrapping everything we do, and that is going to take some time. It's going to take some effort, um, but you can fast-track it a little bit, and, and I urge people to do that. If there is a blogger that you like or a podcast that you like, take what they're saying and implement it and trust them, and don't go searching for the answer to the same question that they've answered because there might be a, you think there might be a better one out there, trust them and just go with it and get started. You can always change it later. Yeah, definitely. I couldn't agree more. All right, man. Well, we've talked about this a lot. This has been like really, really good. I think people are going to find this really valuable, but let's dive into some travel miles. All right. So we've talked about your course and I think People are going to have a pretty good understanding of how this works, but can you give us like a minute or two overview of how like the, the travel miles work? For sure. So I thought when I first started that you could only get them through flying, and that is a huge misconception and one that still permeates is people think they can get frequent fire miles only through flying. But I'm willing to bet if you live in the U.S. and you've watched any amount of TV, you've seen the credit card things like William Shatner coming on like, well, no blackout dates. And then I think there's Samuel Jackson's and some of them, whatever. There's all these like TV commercials and ads for, hey, earn 50,000 points and da, 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 da. So that is essentially the best way to start getting miles. If you have a good credit score, so if you have anything over 700, and you can check your credit score for free at creditkarma.com and creditsesame.com, don't sign up for any of their programs. Just You can get a free account. You can check your credit score. If you have something over 700, then you're probably going to have a very good shot at getting the best travel credit cards out there, the ones that you see commercials for, which give you the most points. So in essence, you sign up for a travel credit card, a lot of them offer between 40 to sometimes up to 100,000 points. 
And you get that for then meeting a minimum spend. And a minimum spend usually says, uh, I'll give you an example, says something like spend $4,000 in the first three months on this card and you get the bonus. And the bonus, let's say, is 50,000 points. So if you make that minimum spend, you get a chunk of points, a big chunk of points, 50,000. And to put that into perspective, each point is a little different depending on who you get it with. But on United, it's about 60,000 points to get a round trip from the U.S. to Europe. It's about 25,000 to get a round trip domestically in the U.S. So you're getting either almost a free flight to Europe or two round trips in the U.S. And there's a lot of other crazy stuff you can do, but that puts it into perspective a little bit. So you open up a credit card, you make the minimum spend, you get the points. And then furthermore, you also get points for spending on that card. So if I go out and I use my card for a $100 purchase, I'll get $100 points or 100 points. And then also, conversely, there are some bonus categories that, let's say travel and dining is a big one that cards give you more on. So if I go out and buy a $100 meal at a restaurant, then that is going to get me 200 points. So that's another way to continually add miles after you get the sign-up bonus. So one of the first questions that I think is going to come to people is like, okay, well, doesn't this, so, you know, you can do it once and you're going to get, like you said, like 50,000 points or something like that, but okay, that's one time, right? What happens afterwards? Do you keep reopening cards? Like how do you keep like building up that like bank of travel points? Yeah. So first I will say start slow. So if you're someone like I was when I was 28 and had no credit card, just get one, get one, learn how to pay it off. Like, uh, A, always pay every credit card off 100%. Like, don't carry a balance because if you do, the points you're getting are not worth the interest you're paying, not even close. So don't carry a balance. But get one card. I always set all my stuff to auto pay so that I'm not forgetting. But figure out how it works. How do you set up auto pay? How do you pay monthly? You know, this and that. Where do your points go? How can you find out how many points you have? So figure that out. Get one card. Then, yes, once you get more acclimated to this, you can open up different cards. And so I've kind of tailed off a bit because I have such a bank of points, I don't have to continually open up cards. But in the first, let's say, three years, I opened up about 20 credit cards in the first three years. So, again, I'm not saying you do this right away. I'm actually saying don't do this right away. But after I started learning, I opened up some credit cards and got the different point bonuses. So one would give me 50,000 and then I'd meet the minimum spend and I get another one and that gave me 75,000. Um, it was a little easier back then. We're talking 2012, 2013 to open multiple cards. You could still do it. There's a, there are a little bit more restrictions, but it's still certainly possible. And so I would just prioritize three or four. If, if you know what you're doing, once you get your feet wet that you like that, that are worth it. And that can give you a very solid bank. I mean, let's say you open up four over a year and they each give you 50,000 points. You now have a bank of 200,000 points. Um, Maybe they're scattered with different airlines. I would recommend kind of consolidating them with one first. So like I love chase points. And so I would open up one or two cards to get me chase points. So maybe a personal and a business one, and now I'm at 100,000 chase points. And then, oh, there's a cool American Airlines one, so I'm going to get 50,000 there. But I'd get enough in one bank to to do some damage first and then maybe look to other things. So just so people are understanding, you can't you can't consolidate between – you can't say I have 50,000 American Airlines miles and I have 100,000 chase points, so I'm just going to put them all in one pot and have 150,000. Your American Airlines ones are used on American Airlines. Your chase points – 
are either used on Chase's travel portal or this gets a little complicated, or you can transfer them to an airline. So you could transfer them to United or Southwest, but they live in different buckets. Think of them as like different circles. Your American Airlines live over here. Your United live over here. Your Delta live over here. You shouldn't be getting Delta anyway, but they live over here. Your Southwest live over here. Your Amex live over here. Your Chase Points live over here. So get enough in one bucket, in one circle to be able to do some damage and then maybe start picking off some of the other credit card offers. Yeah, kind of think of it as like currencies, right? Like you yep. can't go to like the restaurant down the street in the U.S. and pay with pesos and euros, right? Like it needs to be like you can't like mix and match. Like you can't pay with like different currencies. Okay, so one question that I have right after this is you said, so you said you opened around like let's say like 20 credit cards in over three years. So that would be about a credit card every month and a half or two. Does that not hurt your credit score? Okay. Isn't so, that like a big thing about opening up credit cards? Yep. So the a huge misconception, it revolves around credit score. And without getting too nerdy about credit, um, it actually probably will help your credit score if you're doing it right. So you always want to monitor it anyway. So just keep your credit sesame, credit karma accounts. Keep checking them, right? So... What happens with credit is one of the two of the big factors in credit score is your debt to credit ratio and also your average age of accounts. So average age of accounts is a pretty easy one to understand. So a lot of people think, all right, if I'm going to get a new credit card, I'm going to close my old one. Usually that's a bad decision. It makes more sense to keep your one open and get another one. For example, if you have a credit card that you've had for five years and you open up a new one, one is for five years and one is for zero years. Your average age of account is two and a half years. If you have a credit card you've had open for five years and you get a new one, but you close that one that was five years old, now your average age of accounts is zero years because you only have the new one. So keeping it open helps your average age of accounts. It also helps your debt to credit ratio. And that simply just means how much credit you have available to you. And so think of it this way. If I walk up to you, Mitko, you've never met me before, and I'm like, hey, man, yo, can I borrow $100? I promise you I'll pay you back tomorrow. You'd be like, no way. Like, I don't know you. I, I, you know, there's like, I don't know you at all. How? I have no idea if you're going to pay me back. My guess is that you're not. So that is someone coming to a credit card and saying, all right, I want credit from you. They have no idea if you're ever going to pay them back. Now, if I walked up to you and I was like, Mitko, hey, can I have 100 bucks? And like two of your friends were there and they're like, oh man, Trav's great for it. He paid me back. Like he's always on time. Like it was fine. You might like consider it. You're like, all right, well, I have two people vouching for him and I know them. So maybe I would do it. And if I walked up to you and said, can I borrow a hundred bucks? And there's like 10 people and they're all like, he's always paying back on time. He's great. You probably seriously consider giving me that money because I have built in some trust with people that you know. Same way with credit cards. If I have 10 accounts open and I go to open another one, they're going to be like, wow, he has a perfect track record with these accounts. And if he decides to default, even though that's not in his history, he has all these other cards that he could default on first before maybe getting to mine. So it's just that you have built up a, a history with these credit card companies. And so actually having more credit cards, you have more available credit. They see you're more trustworthy. You've paid it off. And so it actually helps your credit score in the long run, having more cards open. Right. So if I'm understanding this correctly, it's essentially like as long as you have that credit limit open. So if you have like 
three credit cards and with all three of those you have like ten thousand dollars of available credit and you're using up eight thousand of that that's not good but if you're if you're keeping that empty and you have the it's kind of like the more the merrier correct yeah so if you're if you have a if you have a debt on it, which I, again, I recommend people paying off every month anyway. So if you had a $8,000 debt and $10,000 of available credit, you'd have a debt to credit ratio of, of 80%. That'd be very bad, right? They'd be like, oh my gosh, this, this, you know, he's almost like totally going uh, to hit his limit here. But if you have like a zero debt and you have, you know, $10,000 or even better, you have $100,000, they're like, wow, this person has a lot of money to play with. They're not running any debt at all. They are very, very trustworthy. Mm, okay, that makes. I, I think that that is like a really big misconception. Even with like, I mean, I'm 26, so I'm getting pretty new into the game. But there's people who like, I think even in their like 40s and like later on, don't really understand that, and they've just been taught that like the more credit cards that you have, like that's bad. Like that's bad no matter what. So that's really good to learn. Now the second question that I have had. This is, I think. My main question has always been the main question about this topic, and I think a lot of other people have this question, and that is, how do you actually hit those spending limits? So let's say that maybe you need to hit like $5,000 in three months, and you do the math on that, and that's what, like 1.7K a month in expenses, for example. What if you can't reach that spending limit are there any tricks any anything that you can do in order to hit that spending limit because obviously this is easy if you're like making a ton of dough and you can like spend a lot of money and pay it off but what if you can't yeah so i am in the envious position in some ways of now having quite a lot of expenses uh having a a wife and two kid a second kid on the way and having a lot of business expenses and stuff like that. So envious in some ways I can hit minimum spends. But in the beginning, I was in your boat. I, I was actually living in Japan in the beginning, which made it even harder because not everyone in Japan took credit card. Mm. So I was like opening credit cards, having my mom send them to me and trying to use them in Japan, which I could use them. But just it wasn't like in the U.S. You can use your credit card for a stick of gum in Japan. You couldn't use them everywhere. So I was also in the boat of like, all right, some of these credit these minimum spends are too high for me. So I will always say if it's too high, do not open the credit card because you, A, you won't get the minimum, you won't get the sign-up bonus and you'll also screw yourself for getting a sign-up bonus later because a lot of cards, if you open it once, they won't give you the sign-up bonus later. Like in two years, if you try, if you close it and then two years, you're like, oh, now I can hit it. I'm going to open up again. They'll give you the card, but you will not be eligible for the sign-up bonus. So you don't want to miss your chance there. Okay. Now, So figure out how much you can spend naturally. And I always err on the side of caution. But there are a few things if you're close. Like let's say it's a $5,000 spend in three months and you're like, you know what? We're going to spend like $4,500 or or we might hit $5,000, but I want to make sure we're going to hit it. There are some things you can do like tips and tricks that you can do to make sure you hit it. One is you can pay ahead with certain expenses. So you have car insurance coming up. You're going to pay pay for six months, pay for a year in advance, like stuff that you know you're going to pay. Pay a gym ship a year in advance. Go pay your health care premium ahead. Like there are things that they will gladly take your money for you to pay in advance, and they might actually give you a better deal if you pay in advance. So if you do that, you know, let's say your car insurance is 600 every six months, and you're like, hey, I want to pay a year in advance. There's $1,200 you're knocking off. 
So that is one way to to do that is to is to pay in advance. Another way that's like I you just have to be a little more careful. You could certainly do it is you can go out and you can buy gift cards. So let's say you know that you always go to the Shell gas station. You could go out and you could buy a $500 Shell gas station gift card and it's going to only cost you 500 bucks. It's not going to cost you any more. You could buy a $500 gift card to Applebee's. Oh, that's a lot of crappy food that you have to eat. Um, you know, but like you can buy these gift cards for things and just make sure you put them somewhere safe because if you lose it, you're out 500 bucks and that you just use it. So that is a way to accelerate your spending. Right. It's like, oh, I'm going to buy a gift card for something I know I'll use in the future, but it's going to go on my credit card now because I made the purchase. Um, you can buy like traditional gift cards, like Visa gift cards and stuff like that, but they charge fees and they also like take money away. So I recommend just sticking with the ones that are branded with with something that you're going to use. Um, another way that a lot of people will do this is you can get someone who's an authorized user. Now, make sure you trust them. So this is a a family member, maybe a mom or dad or sister or something like that. So let's say you are younger and you're like, Hey, my spend is not going to be as high. If your parents, and, and I did this when I was in Japan, some credit cards I didn't even have my parents send me. I was like, Hey, this is like a thousand dollar minimum spend in three months. Can you just spend on it? Like you guys got to get a new couch. Can you just use this card and then pay me like transfer a thousand bucks to me and I'll pay the card off. So you can have people become authorized users on your card, which means they can then use your card. They actually get a card that's tied to your account, but in their name and they spend money. So, uh, yeah, if you have someone, you know, who has more expenses, who isn't doing this, they can help you hit that minimum spend. They just have to pay you the money and then you pay off the credit card because you are responsible for it. Like they're not responsible for it at all. You are. So if they skimp out on you, you're, you still have to pay the bill. Um, so that's another way to do it. There are some other, you know, funky ways to do it, but those are like the easiest kind of most normal ways to hit a minimum spend. But I would just tell people again, I know it's beating a dead horse, but if you, if you don't think you can come close to minimum spend, don't get that card. Focus on ones that have smaller minimum spends for now and save that for later. Now, you said that you can, one of the, like the best ways to kind of like increase your spend is to go and buy these gift cards, right? And kind of like pay forward for the months in advance. But obviously like you should have saved up money to make sure that you pay that off, right? So exactly. That, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Don't spend, like don't get a credit card and say, oh, now I'm going to go buy a new couch TV and, and, and that cute little puppy I saw, PetSmart. Like if that wasn't going to be what you were naturally going to spend anyway. So do your natural spending. Plus, if you have to accelerate it and you get a gift card, make sure you can cover that cost because, yes, you have five hundred dollars in gift card, but you have to pay that at the end of the month. So make sure that you ha you can pay off that credit card bill no matter what you're spending it on, what, even if you are accelerating um, it. One last thing I did want to mention is there are ways to pay like rent and student loans and stuff on credit cards. Usually it takes a fee. Uh, you can pay taxes as well. So if tax season is coming up, it usually takes a fee that's around two to two and a half percent. So it's not something you would want to do all the time, but it's worth it for the bonus. Mm. So if your points are worth about two to two and a half percent, if you did it all the time, you would just be breaking even. It would probably it it's not worth it. But if you're doing it to get the bonus, then it might be worth it. So that's something to consider as a strategy simply to get the bonus, but they will ding you and you, and you will have to pay extra. Like if you rent a thousand bucks, it'll probably be an extra, you know, 
fifty dollars on top yeah. or twenty-five bucks on top, depending on what you use. So there's all types of programs to do it, but just know there will be a fee for sure. So what you're saying is if you get a new credit card and you have to meet that spend for those like three months, for example, pay rent so that you hit the the bonus. Exactly. And where can you where can you can somebody go to find out where they can get those programs? Like is that on the do you have that on the EPOP website anywhere? Uh, we are working on a on a on an article that gives you those options. There are always changing. Like people are always coming up with new stuff, and there's always better options. You know how it is with like right. currency stuff. It's like oh now this company went out of business, but this one is a lower percent. So there are, are some things who would honestly Google it and see do a little bit. At, probably in ten minutes of research, you can find pretty quickly which ones work and. Um, if we have a post out by the time this goes live, I will I will certainly send that to you and we can link it up. But we do have a post on minimum spends that there's like 20 ways to meet your minimum spend and we do update that. So if there's a really good option for paying your taxes and or paying rent or, or student loans, uh, that'll be linked in there as well. So we'll send you that article to link up. And if you Google minimum spends on our website, you'll you'll find that main article that gives you some other options too that are a little more complex. Yeah, definitely send that uh, student loans one over to me because uh, <laughs> I didn't graduate from college, so I'm literally throwing money into a fire pit. So if I can get a little bit out of that money, I would take it. Um, but one last question before I let you go because I know you're a busy guy. Um, I think all of this sounds really good, but people can get really confused with like what credit cards to get when they're getting started out, especially because I've heard that if you get certain credit cards First, you can't get other ones later on that are better. Is that right? Um, kind of right. Okay. Yes, there there is a lot of confusion over which are the best ones, and yeah. I will give you a few names, knowing that this could change. But some of these best ones have have been my favorites since the beginning, so they're probably not just going to disappear. Um, we do keep an updated list on our site. So if you just go to best travel credit cards on the site or best current deals, okay. you can also get an extra pack of peanuts.com. Uh, slash cards that is an updated list at least every month you know but as stuff changes we go in and do that and and reasons behind why we like each card and who they're good for so that that will answer a lot of those questions um but what, what would you say is like the best card or the, the the best like one or two cards to get if you're just getting started if you're just getting started the best card out there is the chase sapphire preferred okay. and the reason it's the best card is that it has a pretty hefty sign up bonus so right now as we're recording this and this definitely can change but right now as we're recording it it's a 60,000 point bonus it's usually 50,000 so it's 60,000 so that's a great sign up bonus i think the spend is 4,000 in 3 months that goes up and down sometimes it's 3,000 in 3 months so check on that so it's a a and achievable minimum minimum spend for a lot of people but the reason i love it is the annual fee is 95 dollars, so it's it's in that like lower lower range because some have like 400 and 500 annual fees and we'll talk about those in just a second but it's it's a doable annual fee as well and uh it earns you chase points and to me and for a lot of people chase points are the best points out there so you said think of it as currency right Mitko? so that's a great way to put it if i asked you hey do you want 100 japanese yen or oh no let's do this do you want 100 bulgarian left or do you want 100 us dollars you're going to do some research first you're going to say like well what is the exchange rate so with miles it's not really an exchange rate but you some are more valuable so obviously you'd want 100 us dollars cuz it's twice as valuable as a left 
So the chase points are the most valuable out there because they allow you to use them as cash on their website. And this is at uh, a, a little bit of a variable rate, depending on the card you have. But usually it's about $1.25 per point. So example, if you have 50,000 points, that's about 750, or excuse me, $625 worth of travel credit. So you can go on their site and use it straight as cash. You can say, I'm buying a $625 plane ticket and, and you spend $0. You know, you're just using your points. That's the easy way to use those points as cash. You can you can say, I want to use this many points and pay this much cash. You can use it for car rentals. You can use it for hotels. So it's just a travel portal, same as if you went to Kayak, Expedia, but you're using your Chase points. It's on Chase's site. So that's super flexible. No blackout dates. Use as many points as you want, as little points as you want. If it's a $1,000 ticket and you only have $600 of points, you can spend the $600 of points and spend $400 you know, out of pocket. So it's really easy and flexible to use. So that's great. You also, though, have the option of transferring it to United, to Southwest, to Hyatt Hotels. And that's where it gets a little more possible value, but a little more complicated. But because you can use those both ways, that's great. And they are just an incredible point um, because they're also fairly easy to earn because the Chase Sapphire Preferred has a great sign-up bonus. And so that is my beginner go-to kind of standard if you have a 700 credit score or above that's the first card i recommend is the chase sapphire preferred there is like a sister card to that as a business card so if you're a business owner and you want like the business version of it it's called the chase inc and it operates very very much the same way it's for business spending and then it's also a upper level preferred card called the chase sapphire reserve and that's the one with a $450 annual fee, but it gives you all types of crazy travel perks like lounge access, like TSA pre-check and all that. So we break it down a bit on our website and we'll link to that. But a really kind of baseline that I would say, if it's your first card, go for the preferred. Or if you travel three times or less a year, go for the preferred because it's a lower annual fee. If you travel more than three times a year, maybe the reserve is worth it because you get the lounge access and everything with it. Awesome. What about, is there, and this is like the last question I'll ask you is, is there, like you said that these cards are great for people who have a 700 or above credit score. Are there, is there like one card that you would suggest people who perhaps are just getting started, don't have that great of a credit score, but they want to build that credit score up and then also get points. What would that card be that takes less of a credit score? Yeah, and so this is why I love Chase, because they really do have the best cards at almost every level. So we like the top, top level with a high annual fee, love the reserve. The just getting started, but credit score above 700, love the preferred. The business card, love the Chase Inc. And then the lower score, hey, I don't have much of a credit score, or my credit score is not that great, is the Chase Freedom. And that is just basically the little brother to the chase sapphire preferred your sign up bonus won't be near as high you won't get as many perks but there also is a version with no annual fee and it's available for people who are working on their credit score and might be below 700 and are looking to build credit awesome well travis thank you so much for coming on and i know we spent a whole bunch of time talking about your business and how you've come up which i think is super valuable and we talked a lot about points so that people can get going and if they want to travel and uh, you know become digital nomads or just travel period this is a really great way to do so low cost uh, if people want to find out more about you or listen to the podcast where can they go and connect with you yeah so the hub of everything is going to be extra pack of peanuts.com 
everything about the travel hacking and the credit cards lives there. You can also find the podcast. If you're listening to this podcast and you just want to jump over to a podcast, you can just search Extra Pack of Peanuts. We have 370 plus episodes at this point. So there's a lot for you to binge on there. And I will just say when we, you know, as a last point, everything that comes with like the travel hacking, it's fun. It's like a game, you know, you, you're getting rewards and all that. Um, building a business and entrepreneurship, same thing. But I, I love that all of this leads towards the end goal of travel. So I decided I wanted to build a business that was digital because I wanted to be able to live anywhere and travel anywhere. I decided I wanted to get into this credit card travel hacking game because I wanted to be able to do it cheaper. And I wanted to be able to take kind of the money out of it and say, if I could get a plane ticket to Bulgaria for 50 bucks, then I can go because Mitko's going to hook me up with sweet accommodation. And I know I can, I don't have to spend $700 out of pocket. So if you're someone who's out there and you're like, all oh, this sounds good, but like my love is travel. Same with me. It's all a means to an end. And that end goal is this life of freedom to be able to travel, live and work anywhere. And so, um, I just wanted that. We didn't talk a ton about actually traveling and the fun of it, but all of it for me is an end goal as well. So we're kindred spirits. If you're like, Hey, I want to get into this, but I still want to have that freedom. And it's because the travel is the main goal or living abroad's main goal. Uh, I'm with you and everything we do kind of points towards that. Yeah, man. Well, hopefully when you come visit in Bulgaria this summer, uh, I'll be there and we'll record a podcast in person. Then we'll talk about how much fun it is to travel and see new places and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, you better be there. If I can have my toes in the sand, drinking a beer and recording a podcast with you, I think that there's uh, no better lifestyle than that. I'll be there. And uh, in the meantime, you can follow our journeys at Pack of Peanuts on Instagram and on Twitter too, if you're looking to, to do some social media. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for coming to the show, man. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. It was my pleasure.